This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. Welcome to AM. I'm Sabra Lane, coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. Early next week, the Prime Minister Anthony Albanese will meet with US President Joe Biden and British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak to announce a new deal enabling Australia to acquire nuclear-powered submarines. Media reports in both the US and UK suggest both of those nations will benefit, with speculation America will sell Virginia-class subs to Australia during the first stage of the plan before British-designed boats take over. Europe correspondent Steve Kinane visited the English town that could soon be a key part of Australia's new defence strategy. Barrow in Furness is an old shipbuilding town in Cumbria in England's northwest. In recent years, the shipyard here has been building astute-class submarines for the UK's nuclear fleet. And now this town could be about to become a key hub of expertise for Australia's Indo-Pacific defence strategy, providing the design and part of the build of Australia's new nuclear submarines. Simon Fell is Barrow's local MP. Well, depends what happens on Monday night, but it looks like a good result, um, both for national security, for you know, security in the South China Sea, but also for Barrow as well. I think you know, what it is is testament to you know, the skills and the people who work in the shipyard, you know, what they can produce. Um, I'm hopeful it means you know, a long deal of work with, with our colleagues in Australia and in the States for the future as well. While the new deal has not yet been formally announced, the leaks have started to come out. The British newspapers are reporting that Rishi Sunak was buzzing about the deal when he told ministers about it on Wednesday. He was described by one anonymous minister, quoted in The Guardian, as smiling and bouncing on the balls of his feet. Simon Fell says he's proud that the shipbuilders of Barrow could be about to become a key part of Australia's defence strategy in the Indo-Pacific. What the people do here is second to none and you know, I think it is just a massive vote of faith in the people of Barrow, the, the people who work in the shipyard um, and I'm incredibly grateful that you know, we're heading in this direction. The announcement of the new submarine deal on Monday will do little to calm the escalating tensions between the US and China. Mao Ning, a spokeswoman for the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs, says the deal is evidence that Australia, the US and the UK are stirring up an arms race in the region. We hold that the trilateral cooperation has posed serious nuclear proliferation risks and will bring shockwaves to the international non-proliferation system, stir up arms race and undermine peace and stability in the Asia-Pacific region. We urge the United States, the UK and Australia to abandon the Cold War mentality and zero-sum game, faithfully fulfil their international obligations and do things that contribute to regional peace and stability. Once the deal is done, Australia is set to become just the seventh country to have access to nuclear-powered submarines. In Barrow and Furness, this is Steve Kinane reporting for AM. Ahead of that meeting to explain how Australia will buy nuclear submarines, Anthony Albanese's described India as Australia's top-tier defence partner. He made the comments while becoming the only foreign leader to visit India's first domestically built aircraft carrier. Mr Albanese's also announced the two nations will conduct more military exercises together. South Asia correspondent Avani Dias reports from New Delhi. The INS Vikrant is India's military pride and joy. The ship was the first aircraft carrier to be built in India, and its motto means I defeat those who fight against me. 
Now Australia's been invited to join that fight. For the first time in history, a foreign leader has been invited on board. Well, I'm very honoured to be here today on the newly commissioned Indian-designed and manufactured INS Vikram. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese toured the ship off the coast of Mumbai on the second day of his India tour and thanked his Indian counterpart Narendra Modi for the invitation. Not only for his kind invitation for me to visit this landmark capability, but for his dedication in driving forward our defence and security partnership. Former Indian Navy Commodore Anil Jai Singh says Mr Albanese's invitation onto such a prized ship is a powerful symbol. It signifies a larger cooperation, I think, between India and Australia towards further cooperation in maritime uh, and naval cooperation, perhaps in export of technologies between our two countries. To deepen the ties, Mr Albanese announced the two countries will be conducting more defence exercises together. Later this year, Australia will make its debut in hosting exercises Malabar, a naval exercise between the US, Japan and India that happens annually. And India will now join Australia's Talisman Sabre War Games for the first time, a military exercise led by Australia and the US. I predict that 2023 will be busier than ever for our defence cooperation. But the INS Vikrant also represents a murky area for the Australian government. When Mr Albanese visited the carrier, he walked past three Russian fighter aircraft on board. While India is keen to strengthen ties with countries like Australia, Russia is still a key supplier of weapons and military equipment. Although India is keen to build its own defence industry at home. The defence sector is considered a key sector for promoting self-reliance because we consider our dependence on defence imports as a major strategic vulnerability. Therefore, Vikrant, as the first indigenously built aircraft carrier, is a great showpiece of our naval capability. This is Avani Dias in New Delhi, reporting for AM. Hundreds of thousands of protesters have shut down roads and staged mass demonstrations across Israel, opposing government plans for a judicial overhaul. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is facing mounting pressure to back down on his vision to give the government powers to overturn Supreme Court decisions. Our Middle East correspondent Alison Horn reports from Tel Aviv. Outside Tel Aviv Airport, hundreds of cars sit bumper to bumper in an unusual daytime blockade. The protesters are here for a national day of disruption, a fight against Israeli government plans to overhaul the country's judiciary. The changes would hand the government power over judicial appointments and the ability to overturn Supreme Court decisions. Protester Ofer Aharoni fears the changes would turn Israel into a dictatorship. Uh, It's well known that absolute power corrupts absolutely, even if the people in charge were the most honest people, which unfortunately is not the case in Israel. Uh, So I'm here together with hundreds of uh, thousands of other people uh, to demonstrate and to try to stop that. These protests have been building for nearly three months, usually on weekends. But now they've expanded all across the country on weekdays. They shout, democracy, democracy. And this protester, Sa'ar, says that's what's at stake. We are not going to let it happen, period, no matter what, whatever it takes. 
In the face of the sustained division, Israel's president has warned the country is on the verge of societal and constitutional collapse. The Israeli shekel has plummeted, global businesses have withdrawn millions of dollars and even workers from the state, and senior members of Israel's business, academic, legal and even military communities have publicly condemned the judicial plan. The country's Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, has accused protesters of provoking anarchy. And the issue here isn't even the judicial reforms at all. The goal is to bring down a government that was elected democratically a few months ago. At the airport, travellers are now walking for kilometres to reach the terminal and police start handing out traffic fines to get the cars moving. Protester Hen Kachevich says she hopes these demonstrations will pressure the government to amend its plans. We are not going to allow this to happen on our guard. We don't want to get to the point where we are sorry for the moment that we didn't stop it in time. But the government expects to pass the legislation in full within the next month. This is Alison Horn in Tel Aviv reporting for AM. It's been more than a year since Australia announced a half a billion dollar funding package to help our northern neighbour Papua New Guinea build and update its port infrastructure. It was a massive injection of funds into a country with a well-documented history of graft and cronyism. Now a PNG official in charge of that funding package has been murdered and his own business dealings are being scrutinised by corruption investigators. Josh Robertson reports. In September last year, the head of Papua New Guinea's state-owned Ports Corporation met a gruesome end, hacked to death by men wielding machetes after what seemed to be a hot-blooded dispute between friends. His name was Fago Keniafa, and his death prompted two days of rioting in the close-knit Highlands community. I saw a lot of hatred in the way he was killed. There was a lot of anger. This is Fago's wife, Sarah Keniafa. She's seen photos of her husband taken shortly after his death. Most of them were focused around his face, you know, the knife wounds and all that. His head. That killing itself has spoken that to me. Fago Kiniafa was an influential and powerful figure in Papua New Guinea. As head of the PNG Ports Corporation, he played a key role in negotiating a half a billion dollar funding package from the Australian government, which is aimed at updating the country's port infrastructure. Police are now tracing phone numbers on Fago's phone and what they've found suggests this murder may have been connected to his role at the Ports Corporation. We did not know that it was a premeditated murder. This is Detective Chief Inspector Joel Simitab, the Director of Crimes at PNG's Policing Service. He's speaking exclusively to the ABC. He says text messages on Fago's phone show his death was planned. Already some of the text messages are indicating that Fago was lured to his death. Now there are other investigations involving Fago which aren't related to his murder. Earlier this week, PNG's Prime Minister released a statement announcing he's ordered the country's corruption watchdog to launch its own probe into PNG Port's business dealings. The statement was sparked by the ABC's revelations that Fago appeared to be receiving questionable payments along with another former Ports official called Stanley Alphonse, who's denied any wrongdoing. The scandal is being closely watched by the Australian government. 
Fago was overseeing the distribution of more than $200 million in Australian-funded government contracts to PNG businesses. For me, as head of our PNG Ports, my interest is my infrastructure, rehabilitation of my infrastructure for the benefit of my country. And, uh, <clears throat> and I'm open to partnership with anyone. This is Fago's last interview recorded weeks before his death. At the time, he was celebrating the Australian funding deal. It was Australia who built those pots for us many, many, many years back. And, uh, and it was probably only fair and reasonable that they come back to help us uh, upgrade those projects. The Department of Foreign Affairs told the ABC it had independent oversight of aid and loans for PNG ports and that the allegations of suspicious payments are historical and do not involve Australian public finance. Kiniafa's wife, Sarah, says she hopes investigations bring answers, whatever dark secrets about her husband come to light. I just want the truth to come out. Maybe bad, maybe good. I just want to know the truth. That's Sarah Kiniafa ending Josh Robertson's report, and you can hear his full investigation on background briefing, and you can find that on the ABC Listen app. If you work full-time and struggle balancing that with caring responsibilities with kids or ageing relatives, or perhaps even both, how much easier would it be if you worked a four-day week? A federal parliamentary committee's recommended a four-day week be trialled across the nation with workers still earning full pay. It's one of a number of recommendations put forward by the committee designed to revolutionise Australia's lagging work and care systems. Political reporter Nor Hader explains. When CEO Debbie Bailey learns about the potential benefits of a four-day workweek, she decided to give it a go. We're a not-for-profit and a charity, and we have to work really hard with every dollar that we earn. So we thought if there's a way that we can increase our productivity, we want to learn how to do that and put it into action. Momentum Mental Health in Toowoomba joined a global trial last year, and it's been a success so far. We haven't actually reduced the hours that our clients have access to us. In fact, it's actually increased for them and that's where we're delivering 20% more hours than we previously were. Not only is productivity up, Debbie Bailey says staff wellbeing has improved too. The benefit of the four-day week and particularly for us here is what we've noticed is that staff who are caring for somebody else Having that fifth day, which we call the gift day, actually gives them the freedom and the flexibility to attend to those things without the guilt, without the pressure, without having to try and jam it in amongst everything else. It's for this reason that a Senate committee looking into Australia's work and care systems has recommended the government trial a four-day workweek at full pay across a range of sectors and locations. Green Senator Barbara Pocock chaired the committee. We used to lead the world on these issues. We've now got too many people doing long hours, too many people tethered to their phones. It's time to start thinking more radically with more ambition about how we put together work and care. The inquiry made another 32 recommendations, including increasing paid parental leave to 52 weeks, establishing more publicly owned childcare facilities and expanding the single parent payments. We are right down the bottom of the international rankings in the OECD on paid parental leave and shame on us. The recommendations were backed by Labor senators, but that does not make them government policy and they noted such changes would come with cost implications at a time the budget is under huge pressure. Georgie Dent is the chief executive of advocacy group The Parenthood and she says that shouldn't be a barrier. I know it sounds paradoxical that if you pay parents to have babies 
Um, it doesn't sound like that's going to improve their workforce participation, but it does because it reinforces the connection between a parent and a workplace and it reinforces the message that having a baby and then returning to work at some point is perfectly ordinary. She argues Australia can't afford not to act. But if we don't make these investments, the status quo will continue and the status quo is we lag the world when it comes to gender equity and we are failing to provide enough children with the opportunity to thrive. That's Georgie Dent from advocacy group The Parenthood, nor Hadar reporting. Scientists believe they've found a vast deposit of missing carbon sequestered in the Southern Ocean millions of years ago. The rapid burial happened at the same time as a significant shift in the Earth's climate. It's hoped a better understanding of what caused that change might give us more insights into climate systems as we deal with a warming planet. Alexandra Humphreys reports. Scientists have long known that somewhere on the planet is a giant carbon reservoir, but until now, they didn't know where. Dr Katerina Hochmuth is from the Institute for Marine and Antarctic Studies at the University of Tasmania. She thinks the case has finally been cracked. What we found is this massive pile of sediment, two kilometres thick, offshore the Antarctic coast. About 34 million years ago, a massive drawdown in atmospheric carbon changed the Earth from a hothouse planet into an ice-capped one. Dr Hochmuth's research suggests that carbon was deposited in the Southern Ocean. Our paper is basically describing this mechanism that the Southern Ocean pulled out a lot of carbon from the atmosphere over a few million years and therefore changed the entire global climate significantly. Dr Hochmuth says the sediment could provide a record of a key period in history, a time when the change in climate transformed marine wildlife in the Southern Ocean and extended grasslands across various continents. And it all led to the emergence of modern-day mammals. And the time we're talking about is a very turbulent time. So this is 34 million years ago. We get the first ice sheet on Antarctica. Before that, we didn't have an ice sheet. I think it's fine, really exciting. University of Tasmania Associate Professor Joe Whitaker says the deposit covers an area larger than New South Wales. And it's over an area of 1,500 kilometres by 500 kilometres. So that is quite an enormous area. Dr Whitaker says the deposit occurred over a few million years, while Earth's current climate change is happening much more quickly. But the find could hold lessons on the ways Earth's different systems interact. The Earth's systems are complicated and the, the better we understand those systems and that we, we understand some of the unusual things that can happen, we can unravel what's happened in the past and we can use those findings, those learnings, those understandings of how systems have worked in the past to think about are there potential unusual things that could happen in, in the future and in our present day future. The oceans today still act as a carbon sink, drawing down excess carbon from the atmosphere. Alexandra Humphreys reporting there. That's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. Public hearings in the Royal Commission investigating who's to blame for the deeply flawed robo-debt scheme end this week. Today, ABC reporter Rachel Mealy walks us through the key evidence. 
Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.